Well, today in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, we come, as Andrew has said, to that prayer that is possibly the most famous prayer of all time, the Lord's Prayer, said by hundreds of people, thousands of people, millions of people across the world and down the centuries. And yet, a prayer that, while it is so well known, so oft repeated, is so, in many ways, little understood. In fact, part of the reason it is said and repeated daily in Parliament is because people feel it has a kind of non-denominational, non-religious effect to it. That is, it's not something that would be any problem to pray even if you didn't believe in Jesus. It doesn't mention Jesus. It doesn't actually pray in such a fashion that would give you the idea that it's distinctively Christian. And yet, of course, at the Lord's Prayer is at the heart of what the Lord's concerns were. These are the very things he wants us to pray. And so I want to spend a little time with us on this Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Matthew 6, a passage that I take it that you know very well. In fact, it's one of the bits of the Bible that you should be able to recite off by heart to pray, to talk about this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and taught us to pray. Now, Jesus was teaching on the importance of the sincerity of prayer. It's all part of his teaching on integrity. Uh, not to do our righteousness in order to be seen by others, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, for then you will have your reward, but you will not have your reward from the Father in heaven. And so, instead of people glorifying the Father in heaven, they pray like hypocrites, and we must not pray like the hypocrites. And so... Just as in our almsgiving mustn't be hypocritical, and as we'll see next time in our fasting is not to be hypocritical, so our praying is not to be hypocritical. For when you pray like the hypocrites, you love to pray in order to be seen by others, but not to necessarily be heard by God. So instead of bringing deeds that would glorify your Father in heaven, you wind up glorifying yourself. As people say of you, isn't he so religious? Isn't she such a woman of faith? Aren't they such a holy family? Because they hear our wonderful prayers. But the Heavenly Father doesn't listen to prayers like that. And we mustn't pray like the Gentiles, for they think they're heard for their many words in chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. If they shout and sing and carry on, they think the gods will then hear them and grant their requests. That's because they do not know God, the God who knows what we need before we ask and is more willing to give than we are to ask. He doesn't have to be coerced into giving us anything. We just talk to him plainly, directly, normally, just as we talk to our Father who is on earth. And so Jesus taught his disciples what to pray. Verse 9 Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. It's a very simple prayer, it's a very straightforward prayer. But prayer, you see, is talking to God. It's not mystic meditation, it's not listening to God, it's not some kind of spiritual activity or exercise, it's not some methodology of interacting with the divine, it's just talking to God, our Heavenly Father, as we would talk 
to our earthly fathers. And so that's why Jesus' prayer commences our Father in heaven. For that's the one to whom we talk. Now, it's not wrong to pray to Jesus or to the Spirit, but throughout the New Testament, rarely do Christians ever pray to either the Son or the Spirit. And the Scripture never teaches us to pray to them, but consistently talks about praying to our Father in heaven. For prayer expresses our dependence. And it is the fatherliness of God which is at the basis of our dependence and of our prayer. It's the Father, like any Father, who provides for us and disciplines us, who cares for us and who teaches us. That's what fathers are supposed to do. And he, the Heavenly Father, is the one who is glorified by our requests. He's the one upon whom we depend for all things. And he's the one to whom we should address our prayers. And addressing our prayers to him, we adopt once more the position of a child, needy, dependent, This is very difficult for wealthy and successful people. This is very difficult for technologically able people who are able to do the things of life without any dependence upon anybody else. This is very difficult for adults because we prefer to stand on our own two feet and to deal with life as it comes to us and take responsibility for ourselves. That's why it's so hard For the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus says, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because entry into the kingdom of heaven is humiliating. It is humbling oneself. It is becoming dependent upon God rather than upon your own efforts. For if we must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven, it is only as the Spirit of Christ enters in us that we can genuinely call God Abba, Father, which is the basic approach to God in prayer. And so whenever we come to God in prayer, once again we're adopting the position of childlike faith. Now some of us have difficulty calling God Father because our human fathers were so violent and unloving. And to call God Father seems to stick in the throat. But this is our Father in heaven, not sinful, not violent, not unloving. Not the sinful one who raised us and hurt us, but the one who is sovereign over all things in heaven and on earth. We are especially angry with our fathers, our earthly fathers, because we know intuitively that because he was our father, what he has done to us is doubly wrong. That a stranger should treat us badly is bad but that our Father should treat us badly, well, that is really doubly wrong. For he should be loving to us, he should be caring for us, kind to us, protecting us, providing for us. He should be on our side. And that's why we are so hurt when our Father is hurtful to us. In other words, we know of the ideal of fatherhood. That is, we know of the Heavenly Father, that our own sinful father has so dreadfully misrepresented to us. Don't let the pain of your childhood prevent you from understanding the fatherliness of God. Rather the reverse, let the pain of your childhood help you understand 
the reality of a father as he should be and in heaven as he is. It's this father in heaven who rules the universe and to whom we address our prayers. But in saying that, friends, think about it for a moment. Because God is the judge of all the world. God is the creator of the universe. God is the ruler of the whole solar system. And yet this God who rules and judges and owns all listens to you and listens to me in our prayers to him. As we call upon him, Father, as we make our request to him, he listens and more responds to our requests. However small and unimportant they are, in one, thing, one sense, everything we do is small and unimportant compared to him, but it doesn't matter how small and unimportant it is, God cares. And however big it may be, God can deal with it. Then what should be our requests? What should we ask God for? Well, in one sense, you can ask for anything. Nothing is too small for him to care about. Nothing is too big for him to deal with. So what can we pray to God about? Well, here Jesus is telling his disciples what to pray about. Here is the how to pray for Christians because how you pray as Christians is what you pray. And what is it that Christians should pray? Well, these are the things that Jesus said are fundamental to our prayer life. And there's basically two things in the prayer. One, praying for God's plan. And two, praying for our participation in that plan. Firstly then, praying for God's plan. The first three petitions or requests in the Lord's Prayer are asking for God's plan to come to fruition. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a very God-centred prayer rather than a self-centred prayer. It's concerned for God and his plans to come about rather than for me and my plans to come about. Nothing wrong with praying for me and my plans. You can pray for me anytime you like. Nothing wrong with you praying for yourself either. There's nothing sinful about praying, please, Lord, help me get through this afternoon because the boss was really cranky this morning. That's a perfectly appropriate thing to do. But for all Christians, fundamentally at the heart of what we want are the things of God. And what are the things of God that we would want to be praying we want his predicted plans to come about. Now, each of these can be found in the passage we read a little while ago, Ezekiel chapter 36. Hundreds of years before the times of Jesus, the people of God were in captivity in Babylon, sent there by God because of their sinfulness, returned to slavery as they had been under Pharaoh in Egypt before Moses came and rescued the people They'd gone through this terrific thousand years when they'd become a great kingdom under David and then it had all fallen apart and there they were about a thousand years later, no longer in Egypt in slavery, in Babylon in slavery. And there is Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is saying, well, you had it coming to you or we had it coming to us and this is the punishment of God. You must expect nothing else and don't be fools. The Babylonians are going to win. 
But on the other hand, he also says, but God is going to come and rescue. God is going to come and establish his kingdom. God is going to come and in chapter 37, if we'd read on, raise the dead nation up to new life again. Key part of this turning in Ezekiel that we read for us at chapter 36 is the hallowing of his name. Hallowed is one of those funny old words, isn't it? I don't know anywhere else we use it except in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and as many a child has prayed to God that Harold would be fixed up and that uh, it's, it's just one of those words, isn't it? But there's no other word for hallowed other than hallowed. So what does hallowed mean? It makes holy. It makes holy. It's the verb for holiness. Hallowed be your name. May your name be holy. The Israelites had blasphemed the name of God by the way they lived. They'd taken the name of the Lord their God as their God. We are the people of Yahweh. But they didn't live as the people of Yahweh. They lived like the people of Baal. And so they had dishonoured. They had brought disrepute. They had brought shame upon the name of the Lord their God, of Yahweh their God. And if you remember the Ten Commandments, you shall not blaspheme the name of of the Lord your God. Now, you can blaspheme God's name by swearing and cursing sometimes when the hammer hits your thumb instead of the nail, and so you let out a blasphemy, but that's a very minor blasphemy compared to taking on the name of Yahweh and then living in such a fashion that you bring disrepute upon Yahweh. And they brought disrepute upon Yahweh because they lived like the pagans. They ignored the character of God and they brought judgment upon themselves. They were defeated by the pagan nations. They were scattered across the face of the world. They were taken into slavery in Babylon. So that instead of the nations looking at Israel and saying, gee, their God is a great God. Look at the wonderful law that he's given them. Look at the morality. Look at the righteousness. Look at the way they treat each other. These are not like any other people. These are the people who know God. And these are people who, they've been rescued by their God. They've been They've been provided for by their God. They've become a great nation because of their God. No, no, the pagans are saying, well, look at the people of Yahweh. He's not much of a God. He couldn't protect them. He couldn't provide for them. In fact, he put them back into slavery. He's a dud God. If you've ever seen a God, he's a dud one. And so by their behaviour, they were bringing dishonour, blasphemy to the name of Yahweh. And so, the prophet Ezekiel, God promised to save his people. But do you remember that passage in Ezekiel 36? It's not for your sake, Israel, that I'm going to save you, but for the sake of my name. So that in future people would know that Yahweh is a great God. Yahweh is a holy God. Yahweh is a righteous God. Yahweh is a saving God. So as to demonstrate who I am to the world... I'm going to rescue you out of your judgment and salvation, that my name would be hallowed in all the world, that people would see the kind of God, the true and living God Yahweh is, a people, a powerful, able to save and just and righteous God. What do you want for God? Do you want his name to be hallowed in our community? Think of the name Jesus. What do you want for the name of Jesus? Do you wince when people at the office or people at home or in the train swear with the name Jesus? 
all this stupidity that people go on with at the moment. Oh my God. They've even got it down in texts and SMSs to just OMG now. I mean, is that how we want God to be known? As just an expression of emotions for people who have got limited vocabulary? That's not what we want for our God. We don't want Jesus to be just blasphemed. We want him to be honoured, hallowed be your name. May it never pass the lips of people without people at the same time saying, he's wonderful, he's great, he's marvellous. Hallowed be your name. And God's promise of this coming is the coming of his kingdom. When once again he would unite his people into the promised land in Ezekiel's promise, And in this time, he would rule over them in righteousness and justice and he would appoint his king, David, to rule over them as king. And the failed kingdom would be replaced by the true kingdom of God and all the promises of wealth and justice and peace would be fulfilled forevermore. Instead of the nations conquering Israel, Israel would be the nation that rules over all of the nations for God would be king over all and his son, The king would rule over all peoples. We want the coming of the kingdom of God. When the king, Lord Jesus Christ, will be Lord and king of everybody, when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess that Jesus is king to the glory of God the Father. That's what Christians want. That's what we pray for, for the coming of the kingdom of God. And when that happens, of course then God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God is going to do some heart transplants when his kingdom comes, says Jesus. Didn't use the heart transplant phrase, that's mine, but that's what it's about. For the law will be written on the, not tablets of stone, but will be written on the hearts of the people. And instead of having hardened hearts like stone, they'll be given to the hearts of, that want to obey the law of God because the Spirit of God will be in them to move them to obey his law. That's what Ezekiel is promising in chapter 36. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is talking about. That no longer, chapter 5, will we be like the Pharisees and the scribes looking for loopholes, seeking to avoid the law, pretending to keep it while at the same time trying to change it all the time. Now we'll be moved by the Spirit of God because the law of God will be written in our transplanted hearts and that we will long to do that which is righteous. We will long to fulfil the law. We'll long to be obedient to the law, not to the minimum, but to the maximum. That's what Jesus has been teaching about. And so, he is coming to bring the kingdom of heaven when God's name will be hallowed, when the kingdom comes, and when God's will will be done on earth, just like it is in heaven. That's what Jesus came to bring in the first place. That's what we still are looking forward to Jesus returning to bring in the last case, isn't it? It's the same thing. What do we really want? A Rolls Royce. Well, no, really, actually. I can live without a Rolls Royce. I'd be worried all the time about people scratching me. I'd be worried every time I parked the thing. I'd live in permanent anxiety if I had a Rolls Royce. And I certainly wouldn't want it to break down because it would cost too much to fix. Why would I want a Rolls Royce? It's just a tin can to get me around with four wheels down the bottom. Any tin can will do that just gets me around. I don't need that. Why would I be praying for that? I want a Harbour View. 
Why do you want a harbour view? There's lots of harbour and there's lots of views. Why do you have to own a harbour view? Nothing wrong with a harbour view. In fact, if I stand on my balcony and lean out one side and squint carefully, I can see a little bit of the harbour. Just a little bit of water, not much. Grey, green, greasy water down in Darling Harbour. But why do I need a harbour view? I don't need a harbour view. Well, what do I want? I want God's name to be honoured. I want God's kingdom to be here. I want God's will to be done on earth instead of the will of sinful, wicked, evil men and women. So this is what the disciples should pray for. That which God has already revealed is coming in Ezekiel 36 and elsewhere in the Old Testament. But all that introduces for us the second part of the prayer, that is our participation in the plans of God. For it's not just that we want the kingdom to come, we want to be there in the kingdom. It's not just that we want God's name to be hallowed, we want to be there is hallowed. It's not just that we want God's will done on earth, we want to be on earth where God's will is being done. And so there are these three requests about our participation in the kingdom. And the first is the most commonly misunderstood, not helped by the fact that it's not translated accurately in any Bible I know. For everywhere it's translated, give us today our daily bread, which is not what the Greek says. The Greek says, give us today tomorrow's bread. Now, no one translates it that way because it doesn't sound right. It sounds downright greedy, frankly. I want tomorrow's bread. I haven't finished today, but please give me tomorrow's bread. I certainly don't want yesterday's bread. It was stale, but I want tomorrow's bread even today. That doesn't seem to be teaching the right thing. Why would God, Jesus be teaching us? to be giving us tomorrow's bread. It seems to go against the concept of contentment that the Bible speaks about. Surely we should, be, we should be satisfied with our bread today rather than want tomorrow's bread already. That sounds greedy and discontent. Well, that's all true enough. And we should pray for our bread every day and not just take it for granted. But I want to tell you what Jesus was teaching his disciples. And what Jesus was teaching his disciples is about the bread that does not perish, the bread that is the very bread of life itself. The bread of life is the word of God because man doesn't live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But the bread of life itself is that which we will share in the feast of heaven forever. It's the bread of the promised land that never runs out and always satisfies. On the sixth day of the week, as the children of Israel travelled across the wilderness, they were being fed by manna. Every day they had to go and collect it. Every day when they collected it, by the end of that day, what wasn't eaten would perish overnight. It would turn rancid. So you couldn't go and collect two days' worth on any day of the week. You couldn't do that because every day was sufficient for the day, except on the sixth day of the week. On the sixth day of the week, you could collect the seventh day's bread and it wouldn't go off. And you could never collect the seventh day's bread on the seventh day. So the bread of tomorrow is the Sabbath bread. It's the bread of heaven. It's the bread of eternal life. That's what Jesus is talking The bread of tomorrow is the, the, the bread that comes in the feast of heaven. It's the bread of life itself. For throughout their journey, they were looking forward to the land 
that was flowing with milk and honey, the land that they would never be hungry and never be thirsty again. It's as Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman, drink of my water and you will never thirst again. It's that water that, that satisfies. It's that bread of heaven that we will have when we feast with Jesus Christ in heaven forever. Ezekiel promises the coming of the kingdom where the grain will be abundant and there'll be no famine ever again. And Jesus comes as the bread of life himself, the word of God himself, which proceeds from the mouth of God and gives us life. And those who promise come to him will never hunger and never thirst again. So as we pray for the kingdom of God, we're praying for our share in that feast, our share in that kingdom of life. Furthermore, we pray for forgiveness. For when the kingdom of God comes, when God's name is hallowed and his will is done on earth, then he will judge the world in righteousness. The resurrection will happen in Ezekiel 37 and we will all rise to life, some to eternal life and some to eternal condemnation. It's taught to us not only in Ezekiel 36 but 37 but also in John's Gospel, chapter 5. And so if we're praying for the kingdom to come, then we must make sure that we are right with God. There's no point praying for the justice to come upon the earth if you're one of the guilty who is going to be punished. That's daft. That is really, really daft. Please, God, come and judge the world and send all wicked people like me to hell. Has really got to be one of the dumbest prayers of all time. But if I'm praying for the coming of the kingdom of God, I'm praying for God's will to be done on earth, then I'm praying for judgment. If I'm praying for judgment, then I need forgiveness. But we cannot ask for forgiveness for ourselves from God while we continue to demand justice from other. Please, God, come and forgive me, but make sure you punish him. And I'm willing to accept your forgiveness, but I'm not going to forgive him. If you're a forgiveness person, be a forgiveness person, which is why he says in verses 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So forgive us our debts as we have forgiven those who, uh, those, uh, uh, who are our debtors. Some people are very big on demanding their just desserts. They don't realise how sinful they are and they don't realise that one day God will come and demand just desserts from them. Me? Personally, I'm a mercy man through and through. I'm never interested in just desserts. The last thing I want is just desserts. I want forgiveness and pardon and mercy on all occasions. And therefore, whatever you do to me, my knee-jerk reaction will always be forgive you and pardon you because that's the way, that's the way of a Christian, forgiveness. And so with the coming of the God's planned kingdom, where we eat the bread of life and receive forgiveness, thirdly, then we want to be protected from evil. We don't want to come to the time of testing and difficulty when and where the evil one has sway in the world. We want deliverance from the evil and the evil one. Rescue out of the domain of darkness. So hungering and thirsting for righteousness as Jesus teaches we are to do. Wanting God's will on earth as it is in heaven. We don't want to play with evil. We don't want to be party to its rule on earth. Or to be caught up in that great final struggle. We want to be removed from evil and evil from us. When we baptise people, we ask them whether they renounce the devil and all his works. For being a member of the kingdom of God means turning your back on evil and the evil one 
and to pray to God for protection and rescue from the evil one. Now this is what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. But what will praying the Lord's Prayer look like today? Is there anything wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer? Well, there's nothing wrong with reciting. In fact, by reciting it, you learn it off by heart. But there are some dangers in teaching people to pray it by just recitation. You see it in Parliament when it is recited by our leaders. I'm glad they do because it's the only time they acknowledge there's someone more important than themselves. But they do it without much concern that they are asking God to judge them. It's the chosen non-sectarian prayer because it doesn't use the name of Jesus or seem to have any particular Christian elements. But if you understand it, there's nothing much more Christian than the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's the gospel. It's come, Lord Jesus, come bring your kingdom, bring your will, bring your hallowed name. Come with forgiveness. Come with mercy. It's the gospel. You see it in churches. I went to St Paul's Cathedral in London where unlike other cathedrals I visit, they would make some attempt to engage the tourists with the message of the gospel of Jesus. And I have to admire them that they actually make some attempt, but the attempt they made was awful. Every hour on the hour, they ring a little bell and they say, we pray the Lord's Prayer on the hour. We invite you to join with us, whoever you are, from whatever nation, whatever people or whatever religions. Whatever religions, the Lord's Prayer is not a mantra to recite if you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim. It's completely contrary to those religions. And you see it when people use the recitation of the Lord's Prayer as a, a discipline of penance, say three Lord's Prayers or paternosters, as if God is going to be impressed by the number of times you say it off by heart and how quickly you can say it. We've just learnt that God is not impressed by how often you pray or how long is your prayers. Reciting the Lord's Prayer is not the same as praying the Lord's Prayer. Praying the Lord's Prayer requires us to understand and believe what the Lord Jesus was teaching when he taught his disciples to pray. Praying the Lord's Prayer requires us to want the name of the Lord hallowed. It requires us to want him king. Him to be king in our life and over every life and over all the world. It's wanting his will to be done here on earth rather than my will or your will or anybody else's will. We want him, not my will, but your will be done. We want to share in the heavenly feast, living by the word of God. And we want to forgive and to forgive others. And we want to be protected from the evil one and from all evil and to have, a, have evil removed from our very existence. And all these things will be expressed in all our prayers for we are seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness above all things. And so whenever we pray and for whatever we pray, these are the things that Jesus taught us should be at the forefront of our prayers. Well, are they at the forefront of your prayers? They will be, my friends, if they're at the forefront of your life. And they won't be if they're not. That's the key, isn't it? So let us turn back to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for the sending of your Son that we may be forgiven. 
for the raising him of new life, that we might enter into your kingdom by the Spirit being poured into our hearts. So we pray for each other, Father, that every one of us here this day will know you as our Father, for by your Spirit we will all know Jesus as our Lord. And that our prayer life will reflect our lives. That our concerns will be for you, for your name and your will to be done in all this world, but also done in our lives. And we ask this through Jesus Christ, who taught us all to pray together, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the glory and the power are yours, now and forever. Amen.